And hi. Thank you. Good evening. That's good. My name is John Anderson, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at uh, Door Creek Church. It's so good to be with you all, and hello to everybody on video. Um, now, it's been a little while since I've been here last, and you may be looking at me and thinking, like, something looks different. Like, did he wear glasses? Has he lost a lot of weight? Because I know some of you are thinking that. And the truth is, yes, to that second one, I've lost a lot of weight on my face. I recently shaved off my mountain man beard and uh, went with this sleeker summer look. What do you guys think? This is good? Good, yeah. Tepid applause, I will tell my wife. Um, and I just thought, you know, RD gives updates about his twins, and I'm just going to get in the pattern of giving you updates about my facial hair. So, does that sound good? All right. Good. You can put on our Facebook which one you prefer. It'll be a lot of fun. All right, so let's get started. Um, this has nothing to do with the sermon. So a number of years ago, I read this fascinating book uh, called, Ri- called Rise of Christianity. The author is uh, a man named Rodney Stark, who's a professor of sociology and comparative religion at the University of Washington. And in his book, he asks this basic question, and the question is this. How did Christianity go from being this really small group of Christians to being the majority religion of the Roman Empire and beyond? within a, ma- a short matter of time. And to give a, a sense of kind of the d- dramatic growth of Christianity in those early years, um, we have some statistics that are pulled right from the book. So uh, in the year 50, so just about 15 to 20 years after Jesus was with us, there was about 1,400 Christ followers. So n- not that many, right? Just a few. A hundred years later, in the year 150, there was 40,596, so somewhat dramatic growth. In the year 250, there was 1.1 million followers of Christ. And by the year 350, there was 33.8, I think I can read that from the back, here we go, 33.8 million people who identified themselves as followers of Christ. And throughout this book, the whole study is kind of exploring what are the key factors, what are the things that happened in the life of the church that caused this dramatic growth? Is there anything that we can point to that kind of gives evidence for how that we went from less than 2,000 to over 33 million people that quickly? And today, in chapter 4 of 1 John, we're going to see one of those key elements that changed history. We're going to look at how the early church integrated, integrated this thing into the fabric of their lives, their day-to-day lives, and how it transformed them and the world around them. And we're also going to look at how that same thing today has the power to transform our lives and the world around us. So you guys ready for this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lots of excitement here. All right. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, and in case you're new to this, uh, 1 John is a small book towards the end of the New Testament, uh, and there is no shame at looking at the table of contents in the front. It can be hard to find. So 1 John, we're going to do chapter 4. Um, and just as a reminder, we've been going through 1 John for the last five weeks now, and the likely author of 1 John is the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John. And throughout it, you see his pastor's heart, his caring heart, as he expresses it, as he instructs and encourages the early church to keep their focus on Jesus. And specifically in this letter, he's writing to a group of Christians who are facing all kinds of conflict as they're trying to define theology 
and try to clarify what is an actual authentic Christian experience. And so they're in the midst of all this conflict and, and tension and they're threatening to break the church apart. And over and over throughout this letter, you see that John loves these people deeply, that he cares passionately about the, the health and the wellness of the local church. And he's writing them to protect them, to care for them, protect them from these false teachings and from the disunity that is threatening to break them apart. Now, as you've probably noticed, if you've been with us throughout the series, 1 John is a lot different than many of the books of the New Testament, right? Many of them have this rather linear way of thinking where they start with an idea and then it kind of naturally progresses to the end. 1 John is not like that at all. 1 John is more circular. It's more poetic, uh, it could be like, and this is the best analogy I could think of, it could be like us reading some of these worship songs as if we were reading it as a text, right? It, it, there's patterns that come up over and over again, but as you read it, it can sometimes feel a little bit scattered and a little bit repetitive, if we're being really honest. And yet, throughout the book, we learn key and powerful truths about God's nature, our humanity, and the centrality of Jesus. And in this passage... We are going to see how our ability to love one another and love God is made possible and begins and ends with God's love for us. So let me just say that again. Our ability to love each other here and to love God begins and ends with God's love for us. So with all that said, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 John 4. And we're going to be going through the entire chapter And so we're going to be jumping in and out a lot. So as we go in and out, just keep your finger on the page or or whatever the equivalent is with your smartphone. All right, 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, I love how this starts. It starts with the words, dear friends. It has such this pastoral a fatherly tone to it. It's so clear that John cares deeply for his audience as a father cares for his kids. And so in that light, he goes on to say this, don't believe everything that you hear. Don't believe everyone who says they're from God. Test them. Because there's a lot of junk out there, right? And there's a lot of stuff that could harm you. He's caring for them. And it's important at this point to remember, too, that the New Testament didn't exist yet, right? So they don't have that as a resource. And the early church was very much just forming, and they were just putting together what basic theology they agreed upon. I want you also to notice in this first verse the corporate responsibility given to determine who the false prophets were, right? This is, this is everybody's responsibility. Everyone should be on guard, for looking out for false teachers. This is not just the job of pastors or ministry leaders. And this is true today, too. This is all of our responsibility. But how do we do that? Let's go on. Verse 2. This is how we can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist. What you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Here in, this, in these few verses, John points out 
how they can tell which teachings are from the Holy Spirit and which ones aren't. And he's telling them this. Look for people who acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh. And now their audience, they would have understood what this was all about, right? Because they were facing and confronting teachers who were claiming that Jesus didn't have a body because they believed that the body and the material world was inherently evil. And so he's confronting this one specific thing. But my guess is for most of us, this is not the kind of teaching that we interact with all that often, right? More likely than not, it's things like this. Like uh, perhaps you're, you're exposed to the teaching that of course Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. He's not divine. That's too far. Or of course Jesus is the way to God. Yeah, yeah, right. That's great. That's awesome. He's one of many ways. It's fantastic. And what John is saying here is that any teaching that does not acknowledge that Jesus is who he is, if it doesn't acknowledge that he's from God, Jesus must be at the center. So whatever is being taught in the Christian faith should lead back to Jesus. It sounds so simplistic, but it's often not the case. And so this brings up a good question, right? Does our understanding of Christianity continuously lead us back to Jesus? Do you feel like you know who Jesus is, that Jesus found in Scripture? And for all of us, this is what makes spending time in the Bible, spending time in Scripture, so essential to keeping Jesus at the center. When we study God's Word, we both come to know Him intellectually, right? That's important. But we also come to know Him relationally. And we find out and discover who Jesus is. Because we're, we're surrounded by, I mean, we don't even, we're not even necessarily aware of this, but we're surrounded by all kinds of messages about who we are and who God is. And like I said, we don't even know it most of the time, right? And so it's so critical that we take the time on a regular basis to grow an understanding of what we believe about God and why we believe that. And it's important because it helps us to avoid falling prey to false teachings that exist today just like they did when this letter was written. And there's tons of great resources out there. First and foremost, of course, the Bible itself, right? But there's tons of great resources that can help us in kind of keeping Jesus at the center. And I just wanted to share with you three of them that have helped me. It's just kind of a way to suggest some really great things to check out. So uh, there's a slide up here with three different titles. There it is. Uh, Okay, so on the sides are two different systematic theology books. And systematic theology basically is just this. It's, It's looking through all of Scripture and trying to figure out what does the Bible as a whole say about a given topic, like sin or salvation or God or the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the little things in our faith. And both of these are, are short, relatively short books that are very concise, well-written. Um, the Grudem one is, tends to be a little bit hard, like not as smooth of a read, but it's excellent. They're both excellent. And so I think they're both great resources just to check out to help you kind of put words to the beliefs that we have as Christ followers. And then this middle book is a book written by Tim Keller, which essentially he's making the case throughout of why believing in the Christian God is a rational belief. And this is a resource that I'd say is excellent for anybody here who's a Christ follower and looking to build more confidence in why you believe what you believe. Or, equally 
important, I think, is anybody here, anybody that you know who's not a Christ follower, but they're exploring, they're asking questions, they're trying to figure out what does this whole Christianity thing mean. Uh, first of all, if you're here, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And this is a great book that just kind of goes right towards many of the most common doubts and questions that we have about the faith. And so I highly recommend checking out all three, any three of them. All right, let's skip down back into the text. Verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now here John changes his tone from the previous six verses and looks to inspire his audience. Love one another. What he's saying here is that love shown by our actions is proof of being born of God. It's evidence of an authentic relationship with God. And he goes as far to make his points that he states the inverse. He's saying that basically that if you don't love one another, then you don't know God. God is love. And therefore, if we know God, we love. Now, at first glance, that's pretty like simplistic and straightforward, right? Like if I went around and I was like, hey, do you love people? I imagine the vast majority, if not all of us, there's a clear right answer right there, right? We say, yes, yes, I love. I mean, I don't love perfectly. I could love better. But in general, I'm a pretty loving person. I imagine that would be most of how we, most of us would respond that way. But it's so important here to consider this. How does John define love? And what point of reference does he use for what love should look like? And another intriguing question that this passage brings up is, what if you're not a Christian? Is this saying that you can't love? Because that doesn't seem true. The next few verses get to all those questions. So let's continue in verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So here is a picture of love. God sends his son into the world to live and to die for us so that we may have life. This is love right here. This is it. Jesus comes as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And what is atoning? Atoning just means to make right what was wrong. And what was wrong was that all of humanity was separated from God and dead in our sins. This is true of all of us, true of all people of all time. And what God did is he came down and he paid the debt that none of us could pay. And he set things right between us and God. Love is defined by God's act of service for us. And it's not dependent on our feelings, on our response, on our actions. He loves sacrificially, proactively, and he loved us without limits or boundaries. It's an incredible love. And it's this kind of love that we are called to communicate to each other every day of our lives in the midst of ordinary life. And it's this kind of love that's impossible for any of us, anyone, to live out without the Holy Spirit working in and through us. 
And so, of course, anybody can love. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. I mean, anybody can love. But nobody can love like this, apart from God's saving work being worked out in and through us. Let's continue in verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Wow. Okay, this, I, I know sometimes like when you're reading scripture, it's easy to zone out, but these are some incredible verses. So this is saying this. Since God loved us so much, our motivation now, our ability to love others needs to be rooted in God's love for us. And when that happens, his love defines us. Uh, it reminds me of this... Um, book by Max Lucado called I'm Special. Anybody here familiar with this? Yes, like two people. Nice. All right. Uh, this is a book that I love to read to my, my son, uh, who's three. And it's a, a, a story about the main character is a wooden toy named Punchinello. And he lives in a place where people know their value by how many stars they get or how many dots they get. And the stars are good and the dots are bad. And Punchinello has tons of dots all over him. And one day, he meets somebody unique who has no stars or dots. And he wants to be just like her. So she tells him to go see Eli, the woodcarver. And so he does. And this is how the story continues. Every day, I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no marks replied Punchinello. I know, she told me about you. Why don't the stickers stay on her? Because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about the stickers. I'm not sure I understand. You will but it will take time. You've got lots of marks. For now, just come and see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as Punchinello walked out the door, you are special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the floor. Spending time with God, whatever that looks like, talking with him, reading, listening to scripture, taking time to remember the things that God has done in our life, all those things, they root us in God's love for us. And because God loved us so much, we ought to love one another. Verse 12 says this, that no one has ever seen God but as we live out this kind of love defined in this chapter, then God's love is made complete in us and people see God through how we love one another. Let that sink in for a second. This is incredible. This is saying this, that if we love each other with the kind of love described in this chapter, in some mysterious way, people see God. That's amazing. And it's that kind of love that defined the early church. 
And it's what the study that I referred to at the very beginning, it's what they pointed to as one of the keys for the reason of the rapid growth of Christianity, from the couple thousand people to millions. One of Stark's conclusions is that Christianity spread like wildfire because of how the early Christians responded to epidemics. Uh, Between the years 160 and 250, two different plagues swept through the Roman Empire. In both cases, estimates are that nearly 25 to 33% of the entire population died. Can you imagine? One in four to one in three people dying from one plague. Can you imagine the chaos that that would cause if that happened now? And how did those who weren't Christians respond? Here's what one ancient historian recorded, and these words will be up on the screen. At the first onset of the disease, they, being the general public, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. I mean, easy to judge, right? But like, what would, what would you do? But here's another historian recording how the early Christians responded in the same context. But the followers of Christ acted in a radically different fashion. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Uh, And yet one other historian from that time summed up the perception of Christ followers this way. It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Check that word out, our opponents. Only look, they say. Look how they love one another. People were attracted to Christ because of the radical service lived out by the early Christians. They saw God through how they lived out their love in very practical ways. And the whole community, they gained this reputation as a people who were not afraid to die, who were willing to love deeply, and a people who served in very tangible, life-changing ways. And in chapter 4, verse 13 through the end of the chapter, John keeps pointing back to how Jesus must be at the center It always comes back to Jesus. I mean, this is the simplicity of Christianity. It always comes back to him. A life of faith is not primarily about a religious experience or religious activities. Instead, it needs to be grounded in a relationship with Jesus, where he is at the center of all that we do and all that we are. And just in case you've fallen asleep in the last few minutes or fell asleep during reading the chapter, John reminds us one last time at the very end of the chapter that our relationship with God should change our day-to-day behavior. He ends with these words. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother 
and sister. And so this is where I want to just get really practical with you guys. Everybody in this room, everybody watching on the video, everybody around us needs to be loved and cared for. We are, in this room alone, we are surrounded by physical, emotional, spiritual, financial needs. And First John is very, very, very clear. We are called as a community to love each other deeply, to love each other practically, to love each other sacrificially. And this is why it is so important that you get into small groups, that you serve together, that you invite each other into your homes, that you just invite each other into your life. Gathering on the weekends is great, but this really is not doing church. It is hard to get to know each other. It is hard to meet each other's needs and love each other in really practical, sacrificial ways if this is all we do. This is good, but we need to be in each other's lives to be able to live out this kind of love for one another. And it's also important that we consider what do people outside of Door Creek think when they think of us? Do they say, wow, those people... I don't really know if I like what I be- they believe, but man, they love each other well. Do they notice that when one of us has a need, another responds? When one of us is lonely, another comes over with a meal and just spends time with them. When one of us is exhausted from an incredibly hard week of caring for our children, somebody else shows up to watch the kids so that They can get away with a spouse or a friend. What do people say about us as a community? And do they see God through how we love one another? Because that's possible, but is it happening? And is our love for one another, is it deeply rooted in God's love for us?